there's a great line in that first song that we sang, and I know that you are faithful to remove my guilt and my shame. What a fitting line, especially for our message tonight. Well, it's a joy and a privilege to be uh, back opening up the Word of God with you all, as is our custom when we gather together as a church. I've entitled the message, Hope for Humanity. Hope for Humanity. So let's pray and get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great gift of your Son. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who uh, applied the value of his death to our lives. Lord, we ask that tonight you would Enable us to understand your word by the power of your Holy Spirit who authored this word. Um, there's uh, nothing in and of ourselves that, um, that we can conjure up or, or do to, to understand it on our own. The natural man doesn't understand the things of God. So Lord, teach us tonight. We ask this, that you would open our eyes so we could behold wondrous things in your word. And help us tonight to behold Christ in it as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, hope for humanity. Hope for humanity. We've been in Genesis 3. So I'm going to go ahead and begin reading at verse 14, but tonight we're going to be looking at verses 20 and 21. I was originally preparing to just go through to the end of the chapter, but um, there's just so much that I think that we, uh, it's, it's right for us to just take a look at these two verses on their own. So I'll begin reading in verse 14, just to set the stage a little bit for us. Beginning in verse 14, Genesis 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So we've been looking at Genesis 3 through a number of messages, and I hope that if anything, I've impressed on you the supreme importance of this section of Holy Scripture. This chapter, this is a chapter that if understood accurately, um, you can really have a proper foundation and a proper framework for understanding the rest of the Bible. And we've been looking at this chapter really with respect to two things. The first is the question, why is the world the way it is? 
why is the world the way it is? It's a, something of a universal question. You can, you can go across uh, the ages and across cultures, and people tend to ask this question. People are wondering, why is the world the way it is? So we've been looking at it with respect to that question, and second, with respect to our own personal sin before God and our need for a Savior, our need for a Savior. I don't, I trust I don't have to labor too long to uh, prove to you that we live in a world that is messed up. And I think that if we are honest with ourselves, we would have to come to the conclusion that we ourselves are also messed up. Well, Genesis 3 is God's explanation to these two things. Genesis 3 is God's explanation. So just to quickly recap through the chapter, we've seen um, really this is the fall of the human race into sin. And so the, the, I guess the big blocks of movement that we've been looking at, verses 1 through 5, we see the temptation. We see the temptation. Satan, uh, in, this, in the form of this serpent, he approaches the woman and he subtly suggests to her that God is not good. That God is not good because he has prohibited her and the man from eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he has also suggested to her with, um, with subtlety that his word is not trustworthy. His word is not trustworthy. And then he offers direct lies to her as well. So he... Uh, he uh, attacks the character and the trustworthiness of God through subtlety, but also through blatant lies. God said that the day that they eat of the fruit of that tree, they would surely die. The serpent says to the woman, you will surely not die in verse 4. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, there are no consequences for your sin. No consequences for your sin. You won't die. God is lying. And that you can be your own God. Uh, that you can know good and evil for yourself, and you will be able to decide what is right and wrong for yourself. So there are no consequences, and um, no consequences for sin, and you can be your own God. And so in verses six and so in verses one through five, you have the temptation. Verses six and seven, you have the actual sin. You have the actual sin, the actual fall. And Eve eats of the fruit, and not only does she eat, but she also offers some to her husband, and he eats. And we went, uh, we took great lengths to show that when Adam ate, that the, that was when the entire human race descended into, descended into sin, into guilt, into corruption, and eventually death. We looked at Romans 5, 12 through 19, and saw the comparison between Jesus Christ and Adam as different heads of the human race, and how when Adam fell, the entire human race fell in with him. And so in verses 8 through 13, after the fall, the temptation and the sin, we have the confrontation really and the accountability. So we see, uh, we saw really two sides of this. On the human side, we saw the sinner's tendency to hide from God. The sinner's tendency to hide from God. This is a universal uh, reality as well, that this is not just something that happened with Adam and Eve, but this is something that is true for human beings across the ages and across the world. That it doesn't matter what form it takes, sinners are trying to hide from God, whether it's by good works or religion or just by partying their life away. People are trying to hide from God. And not only hide from God, but excuse their sin. 
trying to excuse their sin by, by blaming something else, anything else other than themselves. Um, God, it's the woman that you gave me. God, it's the woman you gave me. It's, it's the serpent. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's not my fault. It's my environment. It's the way I was raised. It's, uh, it's social conditions, whatever it is. The sinner's tendency to hide from God and also excuse his own sin. But on God's side, in verses 18, uh, 8 through 13, we see that he is a seeking God. We see that he's a God who initiates grace, that he seeks after the sinner. He makes his move toward the undeserving person in grace. Not only that he's gracious in that way, but also that he's just, and that he will call us to account for our sins, as he does with Adam and Eve. And when he summoned them to, a, to give an account, they came. And so we move from this confrontation and this accountability, this God-seeking sinners that are hiding from him in verses 8 through 13, to verses 14 through 19. And in this section, if you're reading from the ESV, you'll notice that there's almost sort of a, a literary uh, distinction, the way that it's, uh, those, um, the text kind of lines up. And so this section, uh, we can think of it as the judgments, the judgments, and they're broken up really into three categories. God moves from the serpent to the woman to the man. And in the judgment of the serpent, we saw a couple of messages ago that this is really one of the high points of Scripture, uh, that we see that this is the first, really the first proclamation of the gospel in sort of in seed form, no pun intended, um, with the woman, we saw the judgment with her, and uh, uh, actually, I'll go back to verses 14 and 15. We saw that God actually cursed the serpent, um, but in distinction to that, uh, in contrast to that, we saw that um, there was no direct curse for the woman and for the man. God did curse the ground when it came to the man, that, that his labors would be frustrated, that the, his environment would be at war with him as he attempted to carry out this mandate that God gave him to, to cultivate, to develop the earth, and to bring it to its full potential, that the earth would be at war with him, it would resist him. And so we see in verses 16 through 19, really it's the, the consequences of sin. It's the consequences of sin that they would have to deal with as they live life in this world. And so... It leads us to our text tonight, which on first reading, at least to me, it, it seems a little bit awkwardly placed. Um, you have this narrative sequence of temptation, the fall, confrontation, accountability, and these judgments of God, the consequences for sin. And then we read these two sentences where Adam names his wife and God provides clothes for them. The flow of the narrative almost seems like it should naturally go, at least to me, it, like it should naturally, naturally just go from verses 19 to 22, where there's the judgments and then God dismisses them from the Garden of Eden. But these two sentences that we're going to be looking at tonight are so pregnant with meaning and so, um, so much significance, not just for Adam and Eve, but also for us, that by the end of tonight, hopefully we will see that this passage is strategically placed here by God to give a saving hope to a sinful humanity. In verses 20 and 21, we see that God begins to set into motion the, those things that are necessary for our salvation. 
Again, in verses 14 and 15, the judgment on the serpent, they are admittedly the mountain peak of this chapter. Um, I'd even say that they're one of the mountain peaks of the whole Bible, really, those, those two verses, especially verse 15. In those two verses, the judgment on the serpent, we really have the first proclamation, again, of the gospel message. We, it's been uh, called the Proto-Evangelium, or some variation of that term, meaning the first gospel. And so we can think of it like that, the first promise of redemption, verses 14 and 15. Tonight, in these two verses, we're really going to have, you can think of it as the first application of redemption. The first application of redemption. And what I hope to show you tonight, this is going to be sort of our main point, our sort of our central idea that we're going to hang our thoughts on tonight, is that salvation requires faith and an atonement for our sins. Salvation requires faith and an atonement for our sins. If we are to be saved, meaning saved from the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin, we must believe and God must provide an atonement for our sins. Now, granted, not everything that can be said about faith and about atonement is found in these passages or in this passage. Not everything that can be said about faith and atonement are found here. The Bible reveals things, we went over, we've gone over this before, the Bible reveals things progressively. Um, meaning that as the scriptures unfold, we get a fuller understanding and a clearer picture of, the, of these salvation necessities. And so we will be looking at a few other passages uh, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that will shine light on this section tonight. And this section in Genesis 3 is really the Bible's introduction to the need for faith, and the need for an atonement for sin as God sets into motion what is necessary for salvation. So, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So Adam names his wife Eve. Up until this point, she's just been the woman or the man's wife. But he names her Eve, which means life. Now, up to this point, up to this point in the, in the chapter, who is Eve... The mother, the mother of. She's the mother of nobody. Nobody yet. You'll recall that in chapter 1, God gave them the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, reproduce, have children, and fill the earth. But before that can happen, they distrusted the goodness of God, they disobeyed the word of God, and they disrupted their fellowship with God. So at this point, Adam is recalling God's uh, prohibition, the condition that he set on that command. If you, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of evil, you will, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So at this point, Adam has eaten, Eve has eaten, and he might be thinking to himself, well, so much for multiplying and filling the earth. That pretty much could be the end of it. Because if what God says is true, I'm going to die. But, again, we keep going back to verses 14 and 15. God proclaims a judgment on the serpent, and it involves three things. Three things. One, there's going to be hostility between the serpent and the woman. Two, there's going to be hostility between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed, meaning there's going to be hostility between these two humanities. Again, uh, the the descendants of the woman that would be influenced by God 
and the descendants of the woman that would be influenced by Satan. That's what's meant by the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. And the third thing that this judgment on the serpent involves is an individual descendant that would come through the woman and crush the serpent's head. Adam heard the promise that God was going to turn the woman, and by implication the man as well, back from trusting the serpent to trusting God again. And that he was going to set these two humanities on a path that would be at odds with one another. And from this one humanity, from this one line of descendants from the woman, would come one who would deal a death blow to the serpent. A fatal injury to Satan. And so, what would this mean? Well, this would mean that Eve would live to have children. If there's going to be this this offspring, this seed, this line of descendants, it follows then that she will live so that they could live and produce this one individual. I mean, this is the pronouncement of life from the mouth of God when what they deserved was death. Death, in fact, told by God that they would die. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. This is crystallized again in the, in the New Testament. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is, finish the sentence, is death. Death. In the judgment of the serpent, God was proclaiming a message of condemnation for Satan, but for Adam and Eve, it was a message of grace. It was a message of mercy. It was a message of favor, of salvation, a message of life. Adam heard it, and he believed it. Adam heard God, and he believed what he said. So this means two things. One, it means that Adam turned from believing the lie of Satan. He turned from believing the lie of Satan. Satan had told him effectually that there are no consequences for sin, that God is a liar, that God is not good, that God is not trustworthy, that God is stingy, that he is restrictive, that he is not out for their good that he is, that he is uh, jealous of a potential rival in Adam and Eve. Satan told them that essentially they could be their own God, they can, they can make up their own morality for themselves. And when Adam disobeyed, he was choosing to believe Satan over God. Adam, who was in the perfect paradise, who saw the goodness of God in its fullness, and he chose to believe this serpent who he didn't know. But he knew God and chose to believe the serpent anyways. He chose to believe Satan over God. And essentially, this is what we all do when we sin. Because God says that X, Y, and Z, these things are evil. These things are an abomination. These things are not meant for our good. But these things will actually lead to death. But we choose to believe otherwise. That's why we sin, because we don't believe that God is telling the truth when he says these things are not for our good and not for his glory. So that's the first thing. And I think in that we see that there is this repentance. There's this change. It's the change that God had said that he would do with the woman. He he would turn the affections of the woman from Satan back to God. So there's repentance here. There's a turning. There's a new attitude, a new disposition toward God and toward sin. And that's what all faith must have. If there is no repentance, there is no faith. So he turned from believing the lie of Satan. Second, he turned to believe God. 
He turned to believe God. He believed what God said was true. He believed that everything that God said was true. Now, Adam didn't have an Old Testament and a New Testament to believe in. He didn't even have an Old Testament. But he believed what God had revealed to him up to this point. And that's what faith has always been throughout the Bible, believing everything that God had revealed, that God had said up to that point. Even when Adam could not see it. Before, Adam could see and he didn't believe. Now, he's hearing this promise of, of uh, an individual who would come and defeat the enemy of God and the enemy of man. And Adam doesn't see it yet, but he believes it. He's the first example of walking by faith and not by sight. All that God had said concerning salvation, he expressed in verses 14 and 15. And Adam believed. And by giving his wife the name Eve or a life, Adam here is demonstrating faith. He's demonstrating faith. It was an act of faith in the truthfulness of God's word. And mind you, he didn't just believe in God. Many people believe in God. The New Testament writer says that even, great, okay, you believe in God, great. Even the demons believe and tremble. He didn't just believe in God or a man upstairs. He believed God. He believed the true God. He put his trust in God and in God's word. And I stress this point to emphasize the fact that salvation has always been received by faith. It has always been received by faith. Salvation by grace through faith is not an innovation of the 16th century Protestant recovery of the gospel. It's not even an innovation of the New Testament, where in the Old Testament you were saved by following the law, and in the New Testament you're saved by faith. It has always been through faith. Now, granted, it is clarified and crystallized in the New Testament, to be sure, but this truth, this reality reaches so far back in human history that it's even true of the first man. The first man made was the first man saved. And that was by faith. Hebrews 11.1. I'll just read it for us real quick. Gives us our definition of faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. That's what Adam had. He had the assurance of things hoped for based on God's word. And he had a conviction of these things that God had said, though he didn't see it. Turn with me real quick, just to, just to show you that this is really all throughout the Bible. Turn with me real quick to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. We're going to look at Verses 1 through 6, I'll just begin reading Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. He's an old man at this point. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. This was a servant in his house, not his relative, not his son. This was a servant. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man, meaning Eliezer, shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. 
and he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed, meaning Abram. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He counted it to him as righteousness. Abram was made right with God through his faith. He had a right relationship with the one true living God, not because he was such a good person or because he was such an obedient person, but why? Because he believed. Because he believed. Romans 4 is the Apostle Paul's explanation, really his, his exposition of Genesis 15, 1 through 6. I'm just going to read for you real quick Romans 4, verses 20 through 25. Romans 4, verse 20 through 25. No unbelief, referring to Abraham, or, or Abram at this point, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We're justified by faith. We are justified by faith, meaning God counts us to be righteous. He applies the righteousness of Christ to those who believe. And again, true belief is a repentant belief. It's a repentant faith. And I'll add one more thing too, that it's faith alone Faith alone. It's not faith in good works. It's not faith in religious observance. And this is to co- really to contrast with the, with the Church of Rome and their, their doctrine of uh, how a person is justified before God, which, by the way, they have not rescinded. They have not taken it back. That a person is not justified on the basis of their faith alone, but it is faith and good works. Faith and good works. Martin Luther said that this doctrine, meaning the doctrine of justification by faith alone, this is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Meaning if you don't have justification by faith alone, you don't have Christianity. That's Christianity. And if you don't have that, you don't have the Christian faith. I'm willing to bet my whole dinner that if you were to ask most people, or most people who go to church or most Christians, what their favorite book is, in the Bible is? What, what do you think it is? Okay. Gospel of John. Most people. Most people. The Gospel of John. And that makes sense to me because it is such a clear picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this book, the Gospel of John, has a purpose statement. It has a purpose statement in it. Chapter 20, verse 31, these things were written so that you may believe, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. By believing. This is what Adam demonstrated for the first time here in Genesis 3. And so question remains with us, do you believe? 
If you're in Christ, do you believe the word of God? Do you believe it when you're being tempted? Do you believe it when you're discouraged? Do you believe it when things are, are, falling, are falling apart all around you? Do you believe it during the good times in your life? Do you believe that, you're, that you need God when God says that you need him, but you may not feel it? That's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Not how can I, you know, not am I obeying? I mean, we should be obeying, but I think really to get past that, we have to ask, am I believing? Do I believe what God says about my situation? And so we see here, really, in, in Adam naming his wife Eve, naming her life, he is demonstrating faith. And here we see what is required for salvation on the side of man. It is required that a person believe. Verse 21, Genesis 3, 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them, and clothed them. So not only do we see hope for the couple through faith, but there's also hope for the couple in an atonement for their sins. In an atonement for their sins. If you'll remember from our last couple of messages, uh, and I mentioned it earlier also, God does not curse the man and the woman directly like he curses the serpent. Now God had in store for the serpent condemnation and judgment, but for the man and the woman he had in store blessing for them. He had blessing in store for them. And it is granted that Adam and Eve would have to live out the remainder of their lives in this fallen world, dealing with the consequences of their sin. That's what those verses 16 through 19 are all about. They would have to deal with those consequences as they live in this life. But God has blessing in store for them. He's going to make them the objects of his love and his grace and his favor. And how would God do this? Does God merely overlook their sin and just let it, and just kind of pass over it? Oh, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. You're, you're, you're sorry. It's, it's fine. I'm going to let it slide. God can't do that. He can't do that. He is a perfectly just God. He's a God of perfect justice. He would not, be, not only would he not be just to do that, he would not be good to do that. He would not be a good God. He cannot let sin go unpunished. So... What must he do? He must atone for their sins. He has to atone for their sins. He has to satisfy the demands of his own justice. And so by killing an animal and clothing them with the skins, God illustrates their need for an atonement that only he can provide. That only he can provide. And that's the, that's the wonder of the greatness of the mercy of our God, the grace of our God that for salvation, that which God requires, he provides. And so there's so much to say uh, concerning this, this idea of atonement, especially as it's found in our text, but I'm just going to try to organize it into really four realities, four truths that are true for the couple, and they're true for us as well, and for everyone in between. So first, they need a covering. They do need a covering. As a result of their sin, their disobedience, the man and the woman now have guilt and shame. They now have guilt and shame. And so they feel the need to cover it, which is actually appropriate. And so they, but what's inappropriate is that they were trying to cover it themselves. They, remember, you recall they tried to cover it with their fig leaves. And so in a sense, God corrects their approach to the solution 
But he doesn't correct their, the, the, that felt need, if I, can, if I can use that term, felt need. Um, he, doesn't really, he doesn't correct that. He actually affirms that. He actually affirms their need for a covering, and he legitimizes it, and in effect says, it's appropriate for you to want to cover your sin, to cover your shame and your guilt. Um, the problem is that by our good works, by our religion, by our exonerating ourselves, um, we reveal that need still, even today. And so God legitimizes the need um, by providing them these uh, garments of skins. So, he legit, they need a covering, first. Second, their own coverings were inadequate. Their own coverings were inadequate. Um, they made loincloths out of fig leaves, tried to cover themselves. They thought by covering themselves uh, visibly and physically that they could cover themselves morally and spiritually as well. They thought that by, if they could just conceal their bodily nakedness, it would also conceal their guilt before God, their condition, their corrupt condition, their polluted condition. And then, knowing that God is approaching them and realizing that their fig leaves would fail, what do they do? They hide. They hide behind trees in the garden which is really essentially doing the exact same thing, the exact same thing. They were still visible, and so were their sins. They were still visible, and so were their sins. Hebrews 4.13, No creature, no creature is hidden from his sight. But some? No. All, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's not just Adam and Eve. That is us as well. No amount of good works, no amount of uh, church attendance, no baptism, no, no taking of communion, of holy communion, or generosity, charity. None of these things will hide us or our sins from a holy God who sees and knows all things. So, their own coverings are inadequate. Third, only God can provide an adequate covering. Only God can provide an adequate covering. If Adam and Eve's sins are to be covered, if their debt is to be paid, if their transgression is to be forgiven, if their guilt is to be atoned for, God must be the one to do it. God must be the one to do it. And he demonstrates this unmistakably by replacing the coverings that they made for themselves, replacing them with his own. By doing this, God is illustrating that man cannot cover his sins by any effort or by any goodness that they can conjure up in themselves. Only God can. Only God can pay our debt, and only God can atone for our sins. And the skins that he makes them are a picture of the righteousness that they need that cannot come from themselves. If you'll uh, permit me again, it could only come from God. It is not something they can produce. Isaiah 64, 6, God says here, We have all become like one who is unclean. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I know that we've gone over this on Wednesday nights before. Really, the, the, the intense and graphic meaning of what, what that mean, a polluted garment is. Um, it's, it's really painting this picture of it is so, um, so polluted, so morally polluted um, that... And this isn't talking about our sins. This is talking about our own righteousness before God. But Isaiah 61.10 reads, 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So only God can give us this garment of salvation, this robe of righteousness. It's only, this covering is something that only God can provide. So fourth, the fourth reality, the fourth truth that I want us to hang our thoughts on when it comes to, to atonement, that if God was to cover their sins, it would require what? Death. It would require death. God slaughtered an animal, skinned an animal to make clothing for Adam and Eve. And it was bloody, it was ugly, it was horrifying, really. This is the first death on planet Earth. This is the first death they'd ever seen. They'd never seen a death before. And by clothing the couple with skins, instead of by some other means, uh, replacing the fig leaves with bigger uh, banana leaves, I don't know, but by choosing skins instead of some other means, God is reminding them of the ugliness of sin and reminding them of the reality that we keep going over, again, that Paul gives us in Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. He can't merely overlook sin. It has to be punished if it's going to be forgiven. It has to be paid for. Hebrews 9, 22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins. And God introduced this when he shed the blood of whatever animal he killed to provide them with garments. And there's another aspect of this picture of atonement that we can't miss. It couldn't just be a death. It would have to be the death of an innocent sacrifice. Now, whatever animals God slaughtered, they didn't do anything. Animals aren't sinners. It would have to be a perfectly innocent sacrifice. And the skins that he made were meant to show them that atoning for their sins would require the death of an innocent substitute, an innocent sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. And in doing so here, God is establishing the pattern by which his people are to approach him from here on out. We see this really in the next chapter of Genesis, in chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. Cain comes to God with offerings of, of crops that he brought from the ground, and God has no regard for Cain and for his offering. Abel comes to God with a lamb, and God has regard for Abel and regard for his offering. It's because God has established this pattern here. And you even see uh, Noah offering sacrifices, Abraham offering sacrifices. And then eventually this would be written into law, and it would be codified in the Law of Moses, in the book of Exodus. So God is establishing this pattern here of, uh, of sacrifice, of, of a perfect sacrifice, of an innocent sacrifice to atone for sin. And so here's a question. Did animal sacrifices actually atone for sin? Did the skins in Genesis 3 actually cover Adam and Eve's skins when it covered their bodies? Let's turn to Hebrews one more time. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. And you may actually want to keep a little piece of paper in there because we we're going to be going back to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 10. 
I'm going to start reading in verse 1. We're going to go down to verse 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 reads, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, meaning Christ, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. There's a reminder of sins every year, this constant sacrificing. Verse 4, verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book, when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, meaning the the Old Testament sacrifices. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, meaning your will. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Cannot take away sins. In fact, it's impossible to take away sins according to verse 4. So you may be wondering, okay, God is establishing this pattern of sacrifice, of a perfect sacrifice that would last all the way through the Old Testament until the time of Christ, and now you're telling me that they don't even work. So what's the point? What is the point of all these animals, all these bulls and goats year after year after year? What is the purpose of the animal sacrifices? Three purposes. Three purposes. It's a reminder of human sin because they would have to constantly sacrifice over and over and over again, uh, because sin is a constant problem for sinners. That makes sense. Even for the people of God, they would have to constantly make sacrifices, sacrifice. I mean, the, the, the priests were butchers. I mean, they were, people were just lining up, bringing sacrifices daily, daily, and then a sacrifice for the nation once a year. So first, it's a reminder of human sin. Second, it's a demonstration of the need for an atonement. Because when you sin, you incur guilt, and that guilt has to be paid for. And again, it has to be paid for with death, because that is what sin deserves. Third, it's an illustration, and and at this point, I'm just going to say what we're probably all thinking by now. It is an illustration, it is a foreshadowing of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All the animal sacrifices from Adam to Abel, to Noah, to Abraham, all the way through the law of Moses. All of these things are, in, are a foreshadowing of the true atonement that Jesus Christ would make in his own body, according to that, ver- that passage in Hebrews 10. When Jesus was crucified, he atoned for the sins of God's people. Let me correct myself, actually. He atoned for all the sins of all God's people. All the sins of all God's people. 
Whether it was the animal skins, the garments for Adam and Eve, or all the other sacrifices, or the millions upon millions of bulls, goats, lambs, sacrificed under the Mosaic administration, all of these things merely prefigured and foreshadowed the sacrifice that Christ would become on the cross, that he would become. The death of animals doesn't really do anything, but God is essentially saying, I will accept this for the time being until the once-for-all atonement that will actually pay for sins will come and be applied to those who put their faith in what God had revealed at the time. God accepts them for the time being. Hebrews 1, I'm going to read verses from the, just the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. And really, this opening paragraph is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to begin reading it. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, in the Old Testament, before the temple was built, they had a tabernacle, and this was essentially a portable temple. It was a tent that you could set up wherever you made camp, and then you could tear it down and pack it up and hit the road when you needed to, when God had set out. And whether it was the, the tabernacle or the temple, uh, there were, God goes at length to give instructions, specific instructions for the furniture that would be in the tabernacle and the temple. There are many things God went into specific detail, even to the, to the engravings on some of these pieces of furniture. But there's one that we don't see. There's a piece of furniture that we do not see in the tabernacle or the temple, and that is a chair. Because the priests never sat down. Why? We already went over it. They were constantly sacrificing. There was never any time to rest, except for when they went to bed. There was no chair because their work was never over. But when, Christ, when Jesus Christ was crucified and he was entombed and he was raised from the dead by the power of God and he was witnessed by many witnesses, he ascended to heaven and what does it say? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After his once for all sacrifice, he did what no other priest was able to do throughout the old covenant. That was sit down because he made a sacrifice once for sins. He made a sacrifice once. When Christ gave himself as a sacrifice, not only did he atone for the sins of all the believers who lived at that time, and not only the sins of all the believers who had come after him down to this very day, down to those sitting in this room, but it would also be for those who came before him who had believed, who had genuine faith in the true God and what God had revealed up to that point. The value and the merit of his death would reach back to cover the sins of God's people, even back to the first man here in Genesis 3. In fact, not only did the atonement of Christ cover all their sins, it actually removed them actually removed them. Psalm 103, verse 12. 
as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Remove them from us. That's why the hymn writer can write, my sin, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. When we believe, God takes our sin and our guilt and he removes them from us and places them on Christ. And after putting our sins upon Christ, after clothing Christ with our sins, God takes Christ's righteousness and clothes us with it, just like as he clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of those animals. And God doesn't do this reluctantly. God isn't standing in heaven with his arms crossed like this, and, and Jesus is tugging at his arm, Oh, Father, if I just die for them, will you love them? Will you forgive them? And God says, oh, Well, maybe. Well, okay, sure. No. That's not the kind of God that we worship. He didn't do this reluctantly or begrudgingly. The cross didn't purchase the Father's love. It didn't purchase the Father's love. It channeled the Father's love. What's the most famous verse in the New Testament? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's the same love of God that clothes Adam and Eve to show them that if their guilt is to be covered, if their sins are to be atoned for, they can't do it themselves. God would have to do it. God would have to do it. And so, as we consider these two verses, these sentences, really, we see that from the very beginning of human history, from the very beginning of human history, salvation is received through faith. It is received through faith. And not simply believing in God in a vague way, believing in a man upstairs, believing in some higher power, believing in some uh, old bearded guy sitting on a cloud with a bunch of people in white robes playing harps. Not just believing in God, but believing God and believing everything he says. Believing everything he says. And so the question again is before you today, have you believed? Have you believed where you're sitting? Have you believed what God says about your sin? Have you believed what God says that you deserve? What you deserve because of your sin? Do you believe God when he says that there's nothing that you can do in and of yourself to atone for your guilt, to atone for your transgressions, to cover them? Do you believe that Jesus Christ and the atonement, the once-for-all atonement that he made when he died on the cross is your only hope for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you believe it? And do you believe God's word that he is with you in temptation, when he is, that he is with you in, in those, the, the dark nights of the soul? When he is with you, in, even in the, the valley of the shadow of death, do you believe that he's with you, that he's leading you and guiding you? Do you believe that he's given you a way out when, when uh, Satan is offering pleasure in temptation, in sin, that you, can, that you have the power, of the, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit to resist Satan, to resist the devil, and he will flee from you? Do you believe that? For those of you who have, I urge you to remember and hold fast to these truths. Hold fast to them in the high times of the high points of life, 
the great times of life, remember your need. God says that you need him every moment, every minute. Believe him. Hold fast to these truths during the high times of life and the deep valleys of sorrow and frustration which are sure to come, not just because we live in a fallen world, but because Jesus promised his people and his disciples that they will experience trouble in this life. Not just general troubles, but trouble for his name. And for those of you, if you have not, I call you today, turn from your sins, commit your life to Christ. Commit your life to Christ. Agree with, agree with, with what God says about your sin and what you deserve because of your sin. And believe what he says about your need for a Savior, the only Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can be sure if you do that, that his atoning death is not just for people out there, for the world, that his atoning death was for you. You can have that assurance when you believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Wow, what a, what a great promise we have, Lord. What a great illustration. That, I mean, just the fact that you can say so much in so few words, Lord. Lord, we just pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, commit these truths to our hearts. That we would believe. And that we would constantly be reminded of our need for an atonement. And, to, and really to, to sing those praises back to you, Lord, because you have provided an atonement for us. That which you have required for our salvation, you have provided. Lord, we pray that you would change us, change us daily into the image of Christ. Lord, I thank you so much just for the joy of, really the, the joy of knowing that slavery to Christ is the most free thing in the world. And even the joy of, of knowing that the more we are conformed to Christ, the more uniquely ourselves we are, Lord, we, that you are calling us to be everything that you've called us to be. And conformity to Christ, it's just the sweetest thing in the world, Lord. We just pray that you would commit these truths to our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.